This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley. And today I'm joined by several fantastic scholars in early modern history and literature to discuss their new edited volume with Cambridge University Press. It's titled Memory and the English Reformation. Alexandra Walsham, Bronwyn Wallace, Carrie Law, and Brian Cummings, they compiled 23 chapters from various authors, including several chapters of their own, to create just a vibrant piece of scholarship on the battle over social memory, which was religious revolutions during the 16th and 17th century. The, 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 the book springs from a, a larger project by the Arts and Humanities Research Council called Remembering the Reformation. And this is based jointly at Cambridge and York. And it's from these two universities that two of the four editors of the book join us today. Alex and Brian, congratulations on your new book. And thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you very much. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing from you about this volume, but perhaps before we do that, uh, could you spend a moment or two and tell us something about yourself and, and maybe how you came to work on this project? Well, um, I could kick off, I suppose, alphabetically. Um, I'm Brian Cummings. I'm a professor of English at um, York University in, in the north of England, which is uh, still surrounded by the Reformation. The city of York is uh, is full of medieval churches. There are 19 medieval churches in York. Um, and there is the York Minster, which, uh, of course, predates the Reformation by hundreds and hundreds of years, but also played a part in it and and just near that there are also ruins of the abbey of saint mary in york so york itself is a is very much a sort of stir and spur to to thinking about memory and thinking about uh the reformation of memory in particular i'm a, a literary scholar by background um my work began i suppose a quite a long time ago now as a graduate student by trying to think about a question which at that point nobody really bothered to ask which is how did does literature of a, a, a sort of very very famous period the period of, uh, of shakespeare um relate to the reformation which is a huge huge uh historical event from any other point of view so that's what i kind of set out to do it has its interests in terms of thinking about how to rethink literature uh, including shakespeare and i've written about shakespeare and and religion among other things but it also, uh, I've always felt, has as much to say about religion, that uh, religion is um, actually almost always, uh, and certainly especially Christianity, about texts. And how do we read texts? How do we write texts? How do we think about them? How do we interpret them? How do we argue about them? Uh, how do we produce them? Uh, these are central questions to religion as well. So I've always thought this is sort of literary question to ask of religion as well as a religious one to ask about literature. Uh, I think that probably puts me uh, in some context. Just at the moment, I'm just finishing a book of my own 
which is about, uh, I suppose, the history of the book as, a, as an object, um, how people treasure them, how people um, also uh, often damage them and do violence to them, uh, very often in the name of, uh, of religion. Um, and that's a book actually that covers 5,000 years of, of writing history and uh, is a gl- very much a global book about global religions, not just Christianity. But I was I was thinking about that and working on that at the same time as I was working with Alex on on this uh, what turned out to be huge and uh, inspirational project um, about memory. Well, perhaps it's my turn to come in now. So I'm <laughs> currently uh, the professor of modern history in Cambridge, where I've been since um, 2010, and perhaps um, uh, typically of Cambridge, modern history begins in 1500 here. Um, So uh, my work has very much revolved around the theme of the reformations in Britain and uh, across Europe. Um, My work has explored themes to do with minority Catholicism in the post-Reformation era, um, belief in uh, divine intervention, in, in providentialism, uh, I've explored questions around toleration and persecution. Um, and uh, the book that immediately preceded this, uh, this project, uh, collaborative project with, with Brian, was uh, the book on the reformation of the landscape, uh, an attempt to explore how uh, perceptions and practices associated with a physical environment um, were transformed by the religious revolutions of the 16th and 17th centuries. So um, Brian and I have known each other for a long time, and we've always thought uh, always thought about uh, doing a project together. And uh, we were recalling the other day meeting sometime in the British Library in the long distant pre-COVID era, uh, where we um, thought, you know, about working together on a project and really we both um, sort of converged on the theme of memory Um, and our project uh, was an attempt very much timed with the anniversary of the the Reformation 2017, the the posting of the 95 Theses in Wittenberg, um, to explore how the memory of the Reformation has been um, has kind of evolved both at its own in its own time and indeed in the centuries since. So our so our interest is in, if you like, both the synchronic aspects of this story and the diachronic aspects of of how the Reformation has evolved in memory and culture um, subsequently. So perhaps that's a good place for us to end. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, the, these essays here contained, are, they're divided into four sections, events and temporalities, objects and places, lives and afterlives, and rituals and bodies. Now, I'd love to take these sections one by one and, and have you speak generally about them. And maybe as we come across your individual essays, perhaps we could zoom in on, on those specifically to discuss the themes there, maybe how they relate to the larger section in which they're placed. But I'll start by asking when you assembled this team of scholars, you're obviously wanting to to think about the function of memory around the English Reformation. What did you say was the goal of this book? Well, I suppose that um, 
we had a number of different things in mind. Um, uh, partly, uh, I mean, I think what what Alex and I were interested in when we, you know, were having those conversations back in the BL. Um, this is just to do with the memory itself as a concept. Um, uh, very much, it belongs uh, in a in a kind of a very much a modern and up to date thinking about memory, which has been. Um, motivated by the experience of trauma in the 20th century so really memory studies belongs with uh it belongs with the holocaust um it also belongs with the 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 world wars of of the 20th century and it's been an effort by mainly by modernists i suppose to begin with to try to think about not just about what events happened in the past but how memory played a part in that so we were certainly trying to think about memory itself. Um, that was also a, a way of trying to rethink the Reformation. The Reformation is a, a huge topic in the way that historians think about the past, and for that matter, as I've said, literary historians, musical historians, art historians as well. Um, but sometimes it's presented perhaps as being a ready-made thing, whilst I think what we were trying to get at right from the start was an idea of, contestation about the way in which the past is constructed and memory has its uses for that as well in destabilizing some of the um, assumptions that we make i mean uh, uh, something that's been very important in memory studies in relation to uh, the 20th century has been to think about false memory about invented memory to think about denial to think about uh, the memory over people's lives and we wanted to, to think about that as well, I think, in relation to the 16th and 17th centuries. Yeah, well, well go ahead, Alex. That would be great. Um, yes, I, I, I think I, I just thought I'd perhaps uh, indicate that our, our sense of the structure was very much shaped by the structure of, of the, the HRC project out of which this arises, which had four main um, threads to it one about events and temporality, one about lives and afterlives, uh, one about um, objects, uh, places and spaces, and then finally ritual, liturgy and the body. So we were interested in how uh, memory has uh, temporal dimensions, how it has uh, spatial and material dimensions, how it's focused around um, individuals, personalities, biographies, and how it's linked with uh, ceremony, uh, ritual, and with with the body. Um, so that, that really shaped uh, the, the structure of the volume. But as I think is clear, if you read it, uh, those are not hard and fast categories by any means. And these threads weave in and out and across the volume as a whole. Uh, often it was difficult to decide which category into which to, to place the, the particular essays. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And I, th- I think the fact that you're able to take on this task by, by building out the complexities of, of memory before and after the Reformation by selecting really diverse case studies, I think it's just brilliant. Because, I mean, you have essays on, on ghost stories, Luther's theses, uh, Thomas More's hair shirt, uh, monuments, shrines, church silver, objects, and actions. 
are, are, are both subjects here. Um, and, and as we said, these, these essays, they're grouped into those four sections, looking at the temporal, spatial material, biographical, and, and ceremonial. So I guess as we, as we turn to this first section, um, events and temporalities, why was it important for you to organize essays around the framework of time? I think in some ways that actually um, grew and grew. I mean, we immediately, before we ever started, we knew that you know events obviously matter. The Reformation is a history of events. Things happened. People remember those things. But I think time actually became a more and more ambiguous and 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 fruitful topic for for all of us. Um, I mean, there was a moment quite early on in the in the project, around about the same time as we had the workshop actually that that um, started this volume in which Bronwyn Wallace, who was, you know, her her topic was the events and temporalities. Each member of the team took took one of the topics as their sort of uh, as their baby. And and uh, Bronwyn came across a chronicle um, when we were looking in Lambeth Palace Library. Uh, so this is a chronicle which, you know, mentions events year by year. And fifteen seventeen, literally, Zach was a blank page there was nothing on it so you know for us this was just both hilarious but also sort of terribly interesting um when when would it have become almost necessary to remember 1517 and you know before then what why why did nobody know that as it were that something was happening at the time and then i mean the luther's own uh uh, own part in the Reformation is a you know long-standing you know controversial question which Peter Marshall discusses actually in his essay in the book in, in depth um, and you know for 50 60 years it's been commonplace to to say oh well Luther didn't really post the theses to the Wittenberg law or perhaps rather if he did it was a very different thing at the time from how it came to be remembered um, but there was an anniversary in 1617 in which people did look back to that and said, that's where we begin. That's where Protestantism started. So it became necessary to remember in different ways from the ways in which, you know, people remembered stuff as it happened. I think I would just add to that, that, that of course, you know, we tend to think of the Reformation with a capital R as a defining historical event or landmark. But one of the premises of our of our work and our research was that um, a historical event is a happening to which significance has been assigned, usually retrospectively, that it's constructed in in hindsight. Um, so that that was very much part of what we were trying to do. Um, not only the 1517 event itself, but as Harriet Lyon discusses in her essay, the uh, perhaps defining events of the English Reformation, the dissolution of the monasteries, as a, as a temporal juncture against which people define their own personal experience and memory. And as she shows, again, it's something that emerges um, belatedly, retrospectively, and, um, and, and for particular strategic purposes as well. Okay. I think that's really helpful. And and Alex, maybe we could turn to, to your essay with, within this section where you discuss how erected objects like, like crosses could could serve sort of as, as emblems of the passage of time and, and, and of mortality. Um, you argue that, that monuments like these, they were, they were hybrids. They served multiple purposes for memory, didn't they? Yes, absolutely. So 
the, the, the phenomena I was exploring were um, churchyard crosses or wayside crosses, which had, you know, scattered the, littered the landscape of medieval England, um, and which were casualties of the successive phases of the Reformation, some of them being um, fully removed or chopped down. But in the examples I'm looking at, um, only partially demolished, that the crosses cut off. And what I found was that there is a striking um, uh, tendency, particularly in the 17th century, to uh, convert those crosses into timekeepers by putting sundials on the top of them. So I was interested in um, the curiosity of that phenomenon and what it means, what it means to have residues of the Catholic past that are then, are then recycled and adapted uh, to perform uh, new purposes that have also, you know, that retain those resonances of the past while also, um, you know, speaking to current uh, new religious and other preoccupations. And I suppose what I'd also just say about that is that one might say that the Reformation, in some sense, significantly reconfigures the relationship between the past, the present, and, and the future in interesting ways. Um, for example, in reference to the dead, it, it puts the dead uh, firmly in the past. The possibility of um, intercession of the, the living for the dead and of the dead for the living um, is something that the Reformation uh, theoretically rules out. So the temporal disjunctures created by the Reformation um, uh, are really part of the story that, that we're trying to, um, to explore uh, in this volume, in, in, in the essays in this section, but also in others um, elsewhere. Yeah, I think that's really helpful and, and well explained. And in your essay, it it sort of bridges the distance between the next section, objects and 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 places, artifacts, places. They, these were quite central to a book on memory, I would think, uh, because memory is it's materialized in forms, buildings, and and things. Could you summarize? Maybe both of you could could take a moment to to talk about um, you know what these essays address and and maybe discuss one. Or a few that especially drove home this idea of the importance of of the spatial material in in English Reformation memory. I think one thing that's um, really important about that section actually goes back to the way that we devised the whole idea for for the for the grant with with the Arts and Humanities Research Council as well as for the book, which is that we set out to be interdisciplinary. Um, and not just with a kind of nod to the fact that this is something that a lot of academics try to do, but that we really wanted to listen to scholars that we wouldn't necessarily always normally come into contact with. So, I mean, this is a section which very much has um, different kinds of scholar working within it, um, some of whom come from literature departments or history of art, as, as well as from history departments, um, and so I, I think it's it, it, one of the things that we wanted to do was to open up uh, different ways of examining the past. Um, and, you know, o objects and places is, is both of, as you said, actually, Zach, it's a very, in, in a way, it's, it's an immediately obvious thing that you need to do with the Reformation. But 
sometimes it doesn't quite happen. Um, I mean, it happens wonderfully in Alex's book on on landscape, and I suppose in some ways that was the, that was the inspiration for this this section. I mean, the essay that I would um, point to this that really interests uh, interests me in particular is is the first one actually by Jane Mashenska. Um, because on the one hand, it's about something I think that everybody kind of knows about in relation to the Reformation, which is that um, some objects were highly controversial and were damaged very deliberately. So uh, iconoclasm is the word that we use for that. And it's especially associated with uh, images of saints, um, which Protestants uh, held to be idolatrous, but also religious images of uh, of figures that were recognised by Protestants. I mean, in other words, you know, the Virgin Mary is, is uh, there in Scripture, uh, as is Jesus. Uh, and so, the, the, nonetheless, the, the question of how you represent um, Jesus or Mary was, uh, was, was something that, that gave people hell, as it were, through 200 years and, and longer. But Joe's essay, actually, it's sort of is, is, is wildly imaginative in the way that it shows that it's not just in terms of destruction that we can think about this, but that actually objects were were reused for other purposes. And, and one of those, you know, perhaps really unexpected to some, is that um, what had been idols were reused as children's playthings. Um, and that, I, I think that is a, a moment of uncanny, uh, actually, um, in, in, in the book, which, which actually I think gets at one of the things that happened to us again and again. We, we've, I, I think, Alex, I'm sure you'd agree that I kept on having uncanny experiences in relation to the past in which uh, something suddenly stood out in a different way. And, and, and that was very moving as well as intellectually interesting. I think what I'd say about this section is that, um, you know, we probably associate the Reformation with the destruction of material culture and, and, and memory in material forms. Um, so iconoclasm is synonymous with the Reformation, but, uh, but our story is also one of adaptation and of recycling um, or, and also of the creation of new material objects and, uh, and images. Um, so we, we really uh, present, you know, a continuum between destruction, uh, recycling, and um, you know the creation of a new, distinctive post-Reformation um, material culture. Um, but I think also, and I think the essay I'd pick out of this section is the one by Philip Schwitzer about the reception of Reformation iconoclasm when, in the seventeenth century. Um, in particular contexts, Protestants would look back at the kind of residues and the mutilated shells of monasteries and of statues in churches that had been defaced and think about those not in the way that we might do now with a kind of sense of regret and lamentation for the aesthetic atrocities perpetrated by Protestants in the name of religion in the 17th, 16th century, but rather as something that was um, was a sort of symbol of the triumph of uh, the Reformation um, 
over the darkness of popery. So the, the multivalence of the material residues of the, the, the pre-Reformation past and indeed of the, the new Protestant material culture is uh, a theme that we were keen to uh, draw out um, in this section. Yeah, that's all very good. And and I guess as we as we look to this next section on on lives and afterlives, these essays explore the lives of, of those caught up in the Reformation. They obviously explore their their literary output too. When I was reading it, it seemed like religious identity. This is a really big theme in, in these set of essays. Um, uh, could you could you guys maybe both speak a little bit on these? Well, life writing is another area which has um, has become really important in the last sort of thirty years of uh, historical scholarship, but also of, of literary scholarship. Um, what, why do people, you know, write their lives? Uh, it's become a very commonplace thing in, in the twentieth century. Autobiography has become a very dominant genre in bookshops, and you know, nobody needs to spend more than ten minutes in the company of a person with their smartphone to realise that. Um, identity and it's bound up uh, all over again um, in the way that we write and exchange communication with each other. Um, I mean, it, it, it definitely goes back to the time itself, though. I mean, in the one way of thinking about autobiography as a genre is through thinking about religious identity and, and especially persecuted religious identity. So that um, all kinds of different groups uh, you know, just just in the 16th century, 17th century, you know, Catholics are persecuted in one place, but in other places they might be persecutors of, of Protestants. Different kinds of Protestant uh, persecute each other. Uh, just about everybody um, will 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 kill a, a, an anti-Trinitarian in the in the 16th and 17th century, wherever they are. Um, so. Identity matters in the sense that people's lives uh, are affected, but also the way that they imagine themselves. So, um, the writings of uh, of martyrs, uh, again, both uh, Catholic and Protestant, and various different kinds of Protestant, um, are hugely important sources in 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 the period. Although often also kind of suspicious sources, in the sense that it's you know it's it's pretty obvious that they're they're written from a a particular point of view, which you might think of as being biased and, and therefore historically dubious. I suppose what we wanted to bring out was the way that actually the way that people tell their own stories is part of what history is, um, and that an assumption of bias or, neut- or, or, or neutrality is is itself a position in relation to the past. It's not some sort of pure neutral space from which we can you know understand everything around it. And I think what I'd add to that is, uh, you know, we we throughout our volume were interested, and this was sort of our uh, a sort of sort of mission statement of the project as whole. Interested in how the Reformation was remembered, forgotten, contested, and reinvented, and those themes come out very clearly in these essays. Just for example, uh, Kerry Law's essay about uh, a curious um, scroll. Uh, on which Matthew Parker, the Archbishop of Canterbury in the early part of Elizabeth's reign, writes a kind of retrospective account of his of his life. And he's a figure who has um, not uh, adopted uh, the strategy of many of his co-religionists. Uh, he has remained um, uh, sort of 
in in England and weathered the storm of Mary's reign rather than uh, sought martyrdom or exile. And so what we're interested in part is is those strategic silences, uh, the ways in which people gloss and embellish and rewrite their lives to fit with the the subsequent identities that they've they've adopted, that that constant process of rethinking who you are, which I think speaks to the the theme you pulled out um, about um, identity and how it is is constructed, how it's uh, created, how it's um, it's edited over time. Yeah, I, I, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Brian. I just wanted to pick out yeah. another essay from the section, which is Tanya Cooper's on on portraiture. That um, it's a really um, it's a really important and interesting thing to think about um, uh, in terms of w- what happens to the visual arts. We, we, again, we, I suppose that the the argument that people tend to have in their heads is that. Uh, Medieval artists is associated very centrally with devotion and the destructive and iconoclastic uh, impulses of uh, of Reformation Protestantism. You know, dis- destroys that kind of visual memory. Uh, but what Tanya's piece is, is about is, is the way that the Protestants use imagery themselves all the time, and um, it, it, it might look to us a different kind of thing because I mean, a lot of what she's talking about is family portraiture. A family portraiture inscribes into itself uh, a sense of religious identity, um, and people wanted to show themselves as a certain kind of family with certain kind of relationships, and relationships to books and scripture as as part of that. Um, so again, uh, I, I think what what we're trying to do all the time in in, in the book is is look at some familiar questions, but to to make people see them in a rather different way. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And 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 Alex mentioned uh, uh, Carrie's essay on Matthew Parker, and I just thought that was so fascinating. How that story could uh, kind of play into the narrative of of collective Protestant suffering, and and even kind of change how people were thinking of of their experience and how they were thinking of the Reformation as a whole. Um, yeah, I thought that, that this was just a really interesting um, collection of essays you included here. Well, the final collection of essays, it, it, they relate to the ceremonial and, and memory, rituals and, and bodies. Um, memory is it, it's forged through performance and, and involves muscular action. Uh, we often place inscription, though, as superior to the medium of cognition. I'm, I'm quoting from the introduction on this section. But it's important, you say, to note that embodiment it needs to be reintegrated into the history of remembering and forgetting. So, Brian, maybe maybe you could introduce us more into these set of essays, and and then and then carry into to what you propose in in your chapter on the destruction of books. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, again, I think there's two two ways of two ways into this. So, one is thinking about memory itself. It's one of the things that that people have thought about a lot in the, in the last. 30 years um, in thinking about memory in general. So it's a concept which is called bodily memory. It's actually a bit controversial among neuroscientists um, who will say, well, the body can't remember itself. Uh, you know, it's, it's all happening through the brain. Um, but what I think people are getting at when they insist upon bodily memory as, as a thing 
is that we remember things through the body. Uh, we mem- remember things through uh, bodily experience. I mean, I suppose the sort of seminal 20th century uh, moment uh, in which, you know, that is thought about, it's very, very famous in, in the history of literature, is Marcel Proust in, 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 in his novel, La Recherche du, du Temps. Perdue, where he, uh, you know, he he takes a, an example of taste as, as something which just reminds him of his entire childhood, um, and that is a seminal moment. Uh, but it 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 also, I think, introduces us to the the second question, which I think is central to the way that this section uh, was devised and then worked out, which is that the body is very controversial in this period. Um, and bodily experience of religion is viscerally controversial. So Alex was 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 mentioning about the um, the, the place of the dead in in, in late medieval uh, religion, which is so central. And the question of what happens to the body in death was something that upset people on the Protestant side, and then also upset people on the Catholic side when it was came under under question. Um, and this also applies to, I suppose, what is for most people the most uh, the most obvious controversy in, in, in Reformation theology, which is about uh, the sacrament. Uh, so what happens to the bread and the wine in the sacrament? Uh, in, in what way is that a, an actual bodily event? And, and, and of course, we all know um, just how much people argued about those questions. So we, we wanted to, to, to think through um, how, how that worked out um, in, in the way that people remembered things and thought about things. And I, I think this is another example of how actually you know, events in, in our own project kind of overtook us quite early on in the uh, – in the project, it was because we had the the workshop in uh, in York, um, and we also had a, a public lecture early on by Eamon Duffy in, in, in York. And when Eamon came, we, we had a little public event in which we just put out a few objects on show that are there in in York Minster and in the library and its collections. And one of them is a missal, uh, which was printed in France, in fact, but for use in York, just before what we would call the Reformation in 1516. Um, and in many ways, it's, it's a commonplace med- late medieval book. Um, but inside its pages, are you find evidence, which I think is still quite straightforwardly shocking. Um, there are, there are little bits of, of writing and intervention in the book, actually, from various different periods. Um, but the most obvious thing in it is that right in, in the middle of the canon of the Mass, the most sacred part of the, uh, uh, of the Mass uh, in, in, in Catholic theology, um, the page has been uh, gouged, but you know, forcibly, uh, twice over, um, in a cross formation, right through, uh, an image of uh, the crucifixion of, of Christ. Now, when we showed that Poulon display, uh, I think everybody, Eamon included, just had a kind of intake of breath um, at the physical violence that was on show. But the book also has a more complicated history because as well as showing to us, you know, 
that the way that uh, a, a certain uh, iconoclasm took place, also the book was kept. It was kept, in fact, in the 17th century by Church of England vicars um, who then put it in the library of a, a North Yorkshire parish in Stainton, uh, uh, in, in the, the far north of the county. Um, and so what we were coming to terms with was that this one object actually has several different meanings over a 500-year period. So you, you can't tie it down to any one point of view. It's a book which actually preserves the memory of pre-Reformation Yorkshire. Uh, it also shows the Reformation happening in Yorkshire, but it also is a book which shows how people use the past in subsequent times to try to come to terms with uh, with, with, with what has happened in uh, seemingly in the long past, but I think with a capacity to move us uh, over and over again, um, even now. Yes, I think I'd just um, add to that. Uh, you know, you started by talking about um, the sort of muscularity of, of memory and the need to reintegrate um, the body and embodiment back into the history of, of memory. And other essays in this set do explore questions of, of gesture, of, of habitus, if you like, um, and, and also of uh, ceremonial action, whether it is you know, self-conscious, um, liturgical instructions about how to um, conduct sacraments or um, how to conduct the commemoration of the Reformation itself, um, we're interested in that that kind of process by which ritual is um, at the heart of the Reformation. One might say that the Reformation uh, has sometimes been thought of as a movement that's inherently anti-ritualistic prioritizes the spiritual interiority of faith. But actually what uh, the essays in this volume show is that the Reformation is a ritual process itself, that it constructs new rituals, it uh, reinvents old rituals, um, it, it, it becomes a ritualized process in the very act of remembering it. You know, the, the verb remember is literally about re remembering creating again um, through uh, through the body, if you like. So that is, an, again, another theme and another way in which uh, the volume as a whole seeks to kind of reset what have become perhaps some quite tired debates about the Reformation and using the lens of memory to get us to rethink these very questions about when Reformation begins when and if it ever ends, and um, uh, and the the complex uh, processes that that fall in between. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And you know, I I found Alec Ryrie's closing chapter here in this section quite significant, uh, addressing English liturgy and and noticing a surprising absence of of commemoration and of of the of the English Reformation even within its own liturgy. And he's arguing that that this is an intentional forgetting, and um, and and it's really a reminder of, of of at least this belated entry of the Reformation as a as a historical event and into written record, as as you guys mentioned. 
Um, yeah, it's just a terrific section. I thought, well, as we wrap up, let me ask this: as we think about memory woven with the with the present and the future, has the English Reformation ended? I don't think so. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it, it was uh, it was something that sort of happened to us again. <laughs> By uh, by accident, or at least I assume by accident, perhaps uh, providence was playing a part. But um, Brexit happened to the project um, as as we were going along, and there was a lot of work in in the press about about this question, actually, of in what way is uh, Brexit a kind of it, uh, uh, among many other things is it is it a, a troubling sort of revenant. Ghost of, of the 16th century and the and Henry VIII's um, desire to create an, an, an English state that even in its religion was um, separable from and separate from continental Europe. I mean, I, you know, that kind of thing can be overdone. It's, it can be it become very glib, um, but I think in a in a deeper way, um, you know, just as uh, T. S. Eliot said about. Uh, the civil war that we're still fighting it now um i think that's true about the reformation after all uh the reformation is there in the middle of of why the civil war happens as well in the 17th century um these things are um they're bound up with each other and i i, I think you know perhaps more widely we uh you know forgetting is much harder to do than we think it's it's a it's a kind of cliche to think that we live just in the present, but actually the the past is with us all the time, um, and we carry that inside of us at a, at a family level or a, you know in terms of our own lives, um, but we also carry you know how we live together with us all the time and how we have done in the past. Um, I don't think we forget the past ever, um, any of it. Uh, at some deep level, but some really obvious thing like this, of course we don't forget it. You know, look at Ireland. Look at the question of of, of what what might happen in the next ten years in, in Ireland. Of course, we're still living the Reformation. I think what I'd add to that is, um, you know, some the mythology of the English Reformation as a coherent event that created a, a church that was distinctive if if idiosyncratic in its its character is itself part of this history of the memory of the reformation it's a it's a belated construction arguably that's rooted more in the 19th century than it is in, in any earlier period um and i think you know one might say that one of the um you know the very distinctive features of the english reformation is its um its unfinished nature in its early phases, which sort of sow the seeds and create the conditions in which there is this constant tussle about what it means, when it began, when it ended, and whether it needs further uh, reform, further perfection. Those are the the, the sorts of motives and uh, engines that drive the conflicts of the 17th century that uh, helped to precipitate the the so-called glorious revolution, itself a myth, um, in the later 17th century, and that rumble on through the 18th century uh, and and into the 19th century, the era of Anglo-Catholicism 
and the Oxford movement and that, you know, have their own repercussions, as Brian has said, into the, the 20th century. So I think um, hopefully uh, the, the volume is something that reminds us that history is not in a box. It, it's something that spills out into our own present and, and shapes our future as well. That's very good, and well, the the book it's ex, it's extremely good, and it and it helps us think about about the complexities of of cultural memory. People could remember and forget, destroy, memorialize, and and you say these these features are, are so important, right alongside doctrine, really, as 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 we think about the English Reformation and and context. It's been so good to talk with you both, but as we close, uh, could maybe first you could tell us. Um, you know, what, what you plan to work on next? Any book projects on the horizon? Well, Alex is just finishing one. I think she could talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, I'm, I have been working alongside the, 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 the Remembering the Reformation project on a project of my own that brings together a number of the central themes. And, and my project, uh, my book is going to be called The Reformation of the Generations, Age, Ancestry, and memory, and um, in a curious way, uh, those themes of generational change, of of conflict, of uh, you know the evolution of memory over the course of generations, um, are the themes that I've been exploring um, uh, of generation as both a social cohort, but also as as a form of biological reproduction. I've been exploring the interfaces and the intersections between those two senses of the word. So it's it's a natural partner to the project that um, we've been working on together. And 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 of course, um, you know, my work on that has been fundamentally shaped and enriched and coloured by uh, the, the simultaneous project on on memory. Well, I suppose in my case, I suppose the uh, the timing of these things is slightly um, slightly different. I mean, the, the the work that that took me into thinking about memory was very much about liturgy. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time working on the Book of Common Prayer. I did an edition of it, and then my most recent book was a, a very short introduction, literally a very short introduction to the Book of Common Prayer, which is trying to sum up in in a, in a, in a hundred hundred few just over a hundred pages, uh, you know, five hundred years of history about. About liturgy, but actually, I'm moving on to something that that looks a bit different. I think now, um, perhaps I'm trying to forget uh, the Book of Common Prayer at some level in my in my head. Uh, but I'm I'm actually working on Erasmus now. I mean, it, it fits in a certain way because Erasmus is is a very central figure in the Reformation, um, in the sense that uh, he remained a Catholic but was taken as a as a kind of model by a lot of people who became Protestants, and so he became uh, a figure who was put on the index by uh, the Catholic Church um, as a prohibited book uh, because of his association with with Luther, and that all that sort of thing will play a part in in the book. But actually, I think um, the thing that's most interesting to me about about why Erasmus still matters is a question about what we think literature is and the part that Erasmus has played in 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 creating uh, a sense of, of literature as a as a category. Um, so Erasmus uh, was a was a great reader, uh, a reader of the classics, um, and a way, I mean, uh, in a way, introducing his own way of reading as a way of uh, as a way of life, in a way. Um, so 
that that's my project. It's going to take quite a while to do it. Um, uh, but I'm, I have to say, I'm finding Erasmus extremely congenial company. Um, maybe especially in a pandemic, uh, to find a writer that uh, who talks to you every day, who never leaves you alone, uh, who gets you through the uh, the rough hours. Yeah, he's um, he, he's always funny uh, and he's always surprising, and uh, it reminds me, I suppose, of, of of why I first wanted to to spend my my you know my career reading literature in the first place. Very good. Well, those both sound like excellent, excellent projects. But for now, thank you so much for for putting together this this volume. It's called Memory and the English Reformation. It was published just a few months ago with Cambridge University Press. And Alex and Brian, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Oh, thank you. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you again next time on New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network.